Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Healthcare workers on the pandemic's front lines are facing moral dilemmas and complicated questions. Are you willing to sacrifice your own health because of a system that failed to prepare? From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll hear what it's like for New Hampshire healthcare workers right now. And as a disproportionate number of Black patients die from COVID-19, it's clear the virus is not the great equalizer. Historically speaking, we have disinvested, or even I would dare say use the word oppressed, people of color's opportunity to gain their highest and most optimal health. Plus, with fewer people driving, there's less traffic noise. Now bird songs can carry, and their habitat might expand. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. It's been almost four weeks since states in New England began issuing stay-at-home orders to slow the spread of coronavirus. Healthcare workers remain at the center of the response. Patients rely on them. Hospitals scramble to buy gear to protect them. And citizens applaud them as heroes in this national crisis. But what's it like to be a healthcare worker right now in New Hampshire? Jason Moon of New Hampshire Public Radio reports the experience of working on the front lines during this pandemic can be complicated. Glenn Kimball is a respiratory therapist at one of the state's largest hospitals. We're not saying which one because he wasn't authorized to speak on behalf of the hospital. Kimball has done this job for 38 years, but he wasn't prepared for what happened last month when he came back to work after a few days off. When he arrived, he found his hospital completely transformed. The ICU was cordoned off with plastic sheets. It was chaotic. Staff were running into rooms to give updates by word of mouth. 20 minutes later, those updates would change. It was a horrible day. I literally was shaking. I couldn't stop shaking. I couldn't focus initially on what I needed to do. And I finally realized I have to get control of this because I can't, I can't care for patients safely in this way. And I was able to do that. Kimball called his wife, who helped calm him down. But the intensity at work only increased over the following week. The world was going into lockdown. The patients were getting really sick. The only week that was worse for me in my life was the week that I lost a granddaughter. For some healthcare workers in New Hampshire, this pandemic is exacting an emotional as well as a physical toll. Long hours and dangerous working conditions are coupled with moral dilemmas and complicated questions about things like duty and obligation, like this one from a nurse. Are you willing to sacrifice your own health because of a system that failed to prepare? That's Lisa, a registered nurse at a large hospital in the southern part of the state. We're not saying which one or using her last name because she's worried about being punished for speaking to a reporter. 
Lisa used to wear a new mask each time she entered a patient's room. I've been taking care of positive COVID patients. I'm using the same N95 respirator for weeks now. You know, I don't know how that could possibly still be clean. I've bleached it, and I think I've actually inhaled some of that bleach, so not a great idea. It's in moments like this that Lisa gets frustrated. Wondering why, after years of warnings about pandemics, America's health care system can't offer her this basic protection. Elisa says the availability of masks at her hospital has improved recently, but it's still not back to normal. And she knows health care workers are getting infected at high rates. Thirty percent of all COVID-19 cases in New Hampshire are health care workers. And Lisa says that makes every day at work feel like Russian roulette. It's today the day that I'm going to think I'm fine. I'm going to go to the grocery store and get the wonderful clerk I've seen every day for three or four years. I'm going to give it to her. Lisa's been a nurse for about 10 years. She knows her work saves lives. So she keeps showing up. But she reevaluates that choice every day. What do you do? You know, what's the smart thing to do? Are you stupid for running into battle without any protection? Or are you brave? Like, what is... What is the answer to that? I have no idea. Here's another tough question to answer from Maria Lucia Patania, a patient care coordinator at Concord Hospital. How can I serve both my family and public health at the same time and not feel completely torn apart doing it? Patania says her work is filled with a sense of purpose right now. But working in a hospital during a pandemic is making her personal life a lot more complicated. Patanya shares custody of her children with an ex-husband. The relationship can be difficult. A court date about child support payments was scheduled for next month. Like so many other things, it's now postponed because of the virus. And now the fact that Patanya is a health care worker has entered into the debate about whether it's safe to keep moving the kids back and forth between houses. I work in the hospital, and that in and of itself is a stigma that, you know, everybody... You know, it says, you're heroes, you're heroes, you're heroes, thank you, but don't come near me. <laughs> so, or I don't want my children anywhere near you. Glenn Kimball, the respiratory therapist we met earlier, is also feeling the effects of the pandemic in his family. A few weeks ago, before the state beaches were shut down, Kimball and his family went for a walk by the ocean to get some air. Kimball drove in a separate car, he wore gloves and a mask, and he kept his distance on the beach. But at one point, my grandson was trying to come up to me, and I had to run away from him, and I felt awful because he didn't know why I was doing that. Because he kept saying, Papa, up! Papa, up! Peas, Papa, peas! And finally, he just got down in the sand, and he had a temper tantrum. The distance between Kimball and his family is now more formalized. Thanks to the generosity of strangers, Kimball now lives in an RV that's parked on his front lawn. He's still searching for ways to cope with all the changes. He's talking with his wife from the RV, and he's turning up the volume on an album of hymns. And Kimball says he'll keep going to work at the hospital as long as there's protective gear for him. But if that were to change, Kimball says he doesn't even want to think about the choice he'd have to make. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jason Moon. Many essential workers do not have the privilege of working from home, and they can't practice social distancing on the job. Seafood processing workers across the south coast of Massachusetts are raising concerns about unsafe working conditions during the pandemic. Reporter Nadine Sabai of the Publix Radio has the story. 
About a month ago, fish plant worker Yamilet Alvarado says she and her team got together at the Tishan Seafood Facility in New Bedford to listen to a presentation on how workers could protect themselves from COVID-19. A government employee, through a translator, told them what many of us have been hearing for weeks. Maintain six feet of separation from everyone at all times, wash your hands, disinfect everything, and don't reuse gloves. Alvarado felt some relief, thinking the facility would start putting these precautions in place. The woman from the agency left, the person who came to translate left, and we went in and no one, none of the managers said, let's put these guidelines in place. Nothing. Everything continued as any other day. I didn't see any changes. And we are so close to each other that we can hear the person next to us breathing. We are very close together. And nowadays, this is not how things should be. The 32-year-old fish processor says workers receive sleeves, hairnets, and two pairs of latex gloves every week. Any other protective equipment, like masks, must be purchased on the worker's dime. And the basics, Alvarado says, are hard to come by. There's no hand sanitizer, and one alcohol spray bottle sits at the entrance of the facility that workers congregate around. Sometimes there isn't even soap to wash our hands. They aren't treating us how we deserve to be treated because we are important in this industry. We are the ones who keep working despite all that's going on. Alvarado recently stopped working when she couldn't get childcare for her three young children, but she says she worries now about her co-workers. Tishan Seafood was unavailable for comment despite repeated requests by phone and email. As a surge of COVID-19 cases continues to spread across the state, seafood processing workers across southeastern Massachusetts are raising similar concerns about unsafe working conditions during the pandemic. A group of fish plant workers who process a variety of seafood that ends up on dinner plates across the globe sent a letter to nearly 30 companies on April 13th, urging them to implement better worker safety standards. There are complaints of a lack of personal protective equipment and disinfectants, as well as overcrowding in facilities. Fish processing advocates fear that if that continues, facilities could begin to see a COVID-19 outbreak among its workers. Adrian Ventura, director of an immigrant nonprofit group called Centro Comunitario de Trabajadores, says he knows of almost 11 fish plant workers who have the coronavirus. One worker, he says, is afraid she's going to lose her job because she contracted the virus. The office of New Bedford Mayor John Mitchell says it's the first time they've heard these concerns from fish plant workers. The coronavirus has struck the cities of New Bedford and Fall River, where many of the fish employees live and work. Bristol County has over 1,000 confirmed coronavirus cases. In this moment, you really can't separate worker health from the public's health overall. Thomas Smith is executive director of Justice at Work, which provides legal services to low-income immigrant workers. The organization helped the group of fish plant workers, known as Pescando Justicia, prepare the April 13th letter to seafood processors. Because workers are hearing a lot from authorities that they need to be staying at home, take this incredibly seriously, and not have contact with anyone. And then when they go to work, just, you know, at least as they've understood it, the nature of the work involves violating, you know, these public health recommendations. Justice at Work has wrangled with the seafood processing industry over the years on a number of issues, including sexual harassment claims, hostile work environment, overtime violations, and lack of sick time. 
This week, seafood processing workers across southeastern Massachusetts filed a class action lawsuit against Rhode Island-based temp agency Workforce Limited, alleging it failed to allow their employees to get paid for sick time and is in violation of Massachusetts law. The workers are seeking back pay for sick time taken over the last three years. Attorney Rachel Smith of the law firm Fair Work is representing the workers. She says it's critical for workers to know that they don't have to choose between going to work or going in sick especially during the current COVID-19 pandemic. If an employer is not providing paid sick time to its employees, then there is a major disincentive for workers to stay home when they may be sick or may be concerned that they've been exposed to coronavirus. The largest seafood processing facilities in the South Coast, including Blue Harvest, Atlantic Capes, Eastern Fisheries, and JTC products, declined to comment on the allegations posed by fish plant workers in the letter. But in a recent interview with the Public's Radio, Blue Harvest CEO Keith Decker said the plant has established a number of protocols to protect workers, including staggering shifts, installing hand sanitizer stations, and asking employees how they're feeling before entering the plant. We're being very cautious about who is allowed into the facility. A worker on your plant floor, if they have high exposure, to a number of other workers, effectively to shut your processing operation down completely. A state health department spokesperson said Massachusetts has not yet received direct complaints about working conditions in the plants and will be looking into it. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nadine Sabai. Black, Latino, and Native American populations in the U.S. are disproportionately contracting and dying from COVID-19. It's no different in Connecticut, where about 12% of the state's population is Black, but the rates of infections and deaths are higher when compared to white residents. And that state data is incomplete. Only about half of the confirmed cases in the state include information about the patient's race. Takesha Dewan Everett joins me to talk about the racial disparity. She's the executive director of Health Equity Solutions based in Hartford, Connecticut. Her organization promotes equal health care access, delivery, and outcomes. And she starts by explaining why this disparity is happening. We know already that African Americans and Latinos in the state of Connecticut were having vast health disparities and experiencing vast health inequity before the virus even hit us. Now, when we're in the face of a pandemic, those issues have not changed. The underlying comorbidities that are rooted in structural racism and disinvestment in our communities are now coming up as issues that are not allowing the best outcomes when it comes to not contracting the virus or being able to survive the virus once it has been contracted. Yeah, what are some specific structural inequities that directly connect with unequal health care access? So when you look across the state of Connecticut, you have African-Americans and Latinos who are going to more than likely live on average in densely populated areas, not only just meaning urban centers, but on top of that, living in congregate housing, such as apartment buildings, or even living in one bedroom or two bedroom apartments with multiple families or generations within them. And in addition to that, we know because of the amount of traffic and uh, emissions from different sources, you have higher rates of asthma. And then we also know that there is a higher rate of diabetes in these communities linked to the not having the proper nutrition available through grocery stores. So there's a lot of underlying things that are all linked to 
what I would say is the structural disinvestment and placement of people in areas where they don't necessarily have access to the things and items that they need. So what are some steps that the state could take right now to better protect Black and Latino residents from contracting the virus? Well, this is one of the most exciting parts of this conversation. Not often do we have real-time ability to change a trend before it becomes a really huge problem. I don't want to mistake by saying that the deaths and the lives that we've already lost is not a problem. We can't correct that. But what we can do right now is change the outreach strategies that we are using to make sure that communities of color are getting the right information about proper ways to socially distance themselves and opportunities available should you not be able to socially distance within your home or isolate if you are um, at high risk for exposure. I want to be very clear in stating we still do not have the information about the racial and ethnic breakdown of those who are being tested and hospitalizations. But we do know that this is a very important item to monitor and to be sure that we are looking at and understanding our implicit and unconscious bias that could come into play and deter the right quality of care for people of color who are coming in through the doors. These are steps we can take today. We don't really have a sense of who's not being tested. Like we don't know if Black and Latino residents are being under-tested right now. And a reporter at Connecticut Public Radio talked to clergy in New Haven who say information about resources and preventative measures um, is not reaching low-income areas Here's Reverend Boise Kimber talking about that. Information need to be printed. Information need to be delivered, maybe from door to door. You know, you just can't come on television every day and say, this is what we want you to do. You know, you got people who don't even have television, who can't even pay their cable bill now. We know there have been daily briefings, but as the Reverend points out, not everyone has a TV. Do you think the government has done a good enough job reaching out? to people with information? I think with every strategy we employ to get information out, we could do better. And I think it's important to understand that in a lot of low-income communities, what we value every day is a privilege for us and a privilege that not many people have. So being able to see a billboard on the highway because we can drive rather than take public transportation or to watch a PSA that comes on in a commercial break from a television show is a privilege that some of us have, but not all of us do. And I think there are trusted leaders like faith leaders and community health workers who can absolutely get that word out. You're in touch with a lot of health advocates and officials in state government. And I'm wondering, do you think a state like Connecticut is ready and able to tackle the racial disparities we're already seeing in COVID-19 cases and deaths? What I think is necessary is to shift from an emergency only perspective that rightfully so in its beginning starts to think about every individual resident collectively and what needs to be done to a strategy to now focusing on how and who have we missed in the process of those broad and blanket interventions and strategies. What I mean by this is I think it's time for us to really focus on health equity The governor in Michigan has developed a health equity task force that could be a strategy we could use right here in Connecticut as well. So in short, yes, I think we're ready and prepared. I think it just takes a focused moment 
to pull together the right individuals, the right resources, and the right efforts to really advance health equity in the state. Takesha Dwan Everett is the Executive Director of Health Equity Solutions based in Hartford, Connecticut. Takesha, thank you so much for coming on the show. I thank you, and I appreciate the opportunity. Social distancing and quarantine measures are helping mitigate the spread of the coronavirus. But these same measures have created new challenges for people living in violent households. WBUR's Shannon Dooling reports on how domestic violence support groups in Massachusetts are trying to adapt. Driving to work, dropping a child off at daycare, or going to church. Traditionally, these are the times when someone being abused may be able to make a phone call or ask for help. But most of these opportunities for social interaction have disappeared with the pandemic, making an already isolated population feel even more alone. Survivors are trapped with their abusers at this point and with social isolation. uh, They don't have a lot of means for escape or for support. That's Stephanie Brown. She heads up Casa Mirna, a group supporting domestic violence survivors throughout greater Boston. She says with the added stress of quarantines and financial strains, Abusive households are experiencing more volatility. The emotional and financial abuse of survivors is going to increase and heighten, and we also expect to see uh, physical violence increase. The general anxiety around the pandemic, spending more time cooped up in the house, or the loss of a job, Brown says, is enough to trigger an abuser. Casa Mirna runs the statewide domestic violence hotline, SafeLink. Brown says calls to the hotline are down about 15 percent, but she doesn't believe domestic violence has decreased. Instead, she believes that's a reflection of survivors not being able to find a safe space to make the call. SafeLink is expanding staff and their capacity to triage phone calls. With traditional points of contact mostly obsolete, community advocates are adapting, figuring out how to connect with survivors in their homes. Cynthia Brazier is a Casa Mirna advocate in Dorchester. You know, are you able to at least go out on a porch or a balcony or go for a walk and then talk to me at that point? We want to still be there for them providing the support, but we also want to make sure that we're not increasing, you know, the, the risk of danger for them as well. On a recent afternoon, we spoke with a woman who was fleeing her abusive husband and looking for emergency shelter for herself and her two children. We agreed not to use her name because she's afraid for her family's safety. She was able to make it to the offices of the Association of Haitian Women in Boston, where the group helped find space in a shelter. And she had advice for those isolated at home with their abusers. If they have a chance to speak with someone or call the police, she said, share what's happening so you're able to escape the situation before you die. Boston saw a 22 percent increase in simple assault and battery reports of domestic violence last month. Boston Police Department stats show there were 203 reports compared to 166 in March of 2019. Brown says Casa Mirna is working closely with the BPD to identify survivors who need support. It's really important that everybody's paying attention um, because, yeah, I mean, Domestic violence can be deadly, and we really are afraid that we're going to see an increase in homicides uh, related to domestic violence. Brown says if you're concerned about neighbors or family who might be living in dangerous situations, reach out to them. Let them know they're not alone. That was WBUR's Shannon Dooling. Coming up, from restaurants to the dairy industry, 
We talk about the coronavirus's impact on our food. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. I have a favor to ask you. President Trump and state governors are starting to talk about when and how to reopen the country. And I'm wondering, do you think it's time? And what measures do you want to see in place before that happens? Leave your comment at 860-275-7595. That's 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. Again, that's next at ctpublic.org. Last week, we asked how you're coping with social distancing, and listener Barbara Waisaki wrote us a great email with one strategy, and we asked her to share it with all of you. We can change the definition of going out to lunch. Last week, Tuesday, was a beautiful weather-friendly day in Connecticut, so I called my next-door neighbor, she's 80-plus, and asked her to go out to lunch. After she left, I explained my idea. She would bring her lunch, sit on the bench on her front porch. I would bring my lawn chair, set up on her walkway with my egg salad sandwich. We had the best time. We must have talked for two hours. It was so simple and yet so refreshing. That's Barbara Waisaki of Rocky Hill, Connecticut, talking about how she's coping with social distancing. Navy veteran Robert Bott of Lewiston, Maine, says there's no doubt the pandemic can test your faith. But Bott, who is Catholic, says he and his wife have found comfort in online prayer groups, and he's trying to make the most of the time they spend together. It's been rather uh, disheartening. It kind of makes you uh, sad a little bit. So what we do is we walk up and down our street every day and and get a little bit of exercise and try to stay in and stay safe. I think that we're we're more together now as a family. Even my daughter who lives in Gardner, we speak almost every day now. We have more time on our hands to uh, take care of the things we should be taking care of could be very uh, detrimental to me if I got it because I have a diabetes and I have an heart, a heart condition. So it's kind of scary. I worry about people um, not uh, conforming to the proper distancing because it's, it's for their own good. And uh, I think that uh, I don't want to lose any of my friends or family because of this uh, this pandemic. I've seen a lot more religious posts on Facebook since this ha- happened. People asking for blessings and prayers. That's the good part of it. Uh, it's it's causing people to get back to their faith and 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 be more faithful. That story was produced by Maine Public Radio's Susan Sharon.
there are few industries as important to the Rhode Island economy as the restaurant business. But the coronavirus shutdown has left those establishments reeling, from fancy French restaurants to gritty dive bars. Some say the immediate crisis could have serious long-term effects. Alex Nunes with the Publix Radio has the story. A few months back, Providence restaurateur James Mark was feeling more comfortable about his business than he ever had before. He'd finished building a bar at his highly regarded restaurant North and successfully launched a second restaurant, Big King. The lucrative spring graduation season was approaching, and James was expecting to see his investments pay off. Then coronavirus hit and turned his business upside down. I laid off all my staff. It was just me left. And that was because I had less than a dollar. I had 67 cents in my bank account. It feels like starting over for worse. Now, like so many other restaurant owners, James is scrambling to see if he can stay in business at a time when he can't legally serve sit-down customers. His accountant says he should just go on unemployment. Instead, James has hired back some staff and is trying to make a go at takeout. But it's a challenge. His normal business model is based on serving a certain number of dine-in customers and markups on alcohol sales. Now he's changing his business so fast, he's not even sure if it's working. And he's not optimistic about the future. I'm not going to paint sunshines and rainbows and tell myself that, like, this is going to work out well. In my best case scenario, I am going to have my restaurants back open again, a bunch of debt that piled up, and a large period of time where, like, we weren't able to, like, make money. And we had to put a bunch of people out of work. Food has long been a crucial part of Providence's social scene and its economy. And that goes for towns and cities around Rhode Island as well. But now the state's restaurant industry is up against a massive disruption that could result in businesses closing for good. This is going to be bad. I don't want to be like the doom and gloom guy on the radio, but this is going to be bad. David Dedekian is owner of the Rhode Island restaurant news and marketing website EatDrinkRI.com. He says he knows a few owners are already looking to sell their restaurants because they won't be able to reopen. But David says the impact on individual restaurants also varies. Some places are already set up to do high-volume takeout business. But fine dining establishments aren't used to filling 60 orders at once, and consumers aren't used to turning to them for to-go orders. By nature, people don't think of a fine dining restaurant as some place to get takeout as opposed to their local pizza place. Across the board, I think those restaurants that aren't traditional takeout places, they're more sit-down dining places, are just trying to, you know, ease the hemorrhaging. Restaurants might be saving some money right now by laying off front-of-house wait staff, but they still have significant costs to cover. Utilities, equipment maintenance, insurance, and rent on dining rooms they can't use anymore. David says some restaurant owners are trying to get financial assistance through the CARES Act recovery plan. But the system isn't smooth. There's conflicting information out there, and restaurant owners are having varying degrees of success getting assistance. Many in the restaurant industry say what lawmakers have done so far still isn't enough. We really appreciate that Congress is passing legislation to try to help small businesses, but as restaurant owners, we're not sure, you know, how do we fit in? How does that programming help us? Naomi Pomeroy is owner of the James Beard award-winning restaurant Beast in Portland, Oregon, and a founding member of the Independent Restaurant Coalition. It was set up during the COVID-19 crisis to lobby for the unique needs of independently owned restaurants. Among its requests, the group wants to reform the terms of the new Paycheck Protection Program 
and create a restaurant stabilization fund that can provide up to $100 billion in grants to independent restaurants. We're asking for some really specific things. We're going to need more money to get back open again. Thank you all for being here today. I'm going to jump right to some poll questions. At the state level, Rhode Island Commerce is trying to help restaurants adapt to the rapid and drastic changes that have come with the coronavirus crisis. Do you have an online presence? Do we have a website? Earlier this month, the organization held a webinar to help restaurants improve their online marketing and ordering. Vice President of Business Development Sue Lee Ko says Rhode Island Commerce wants to help restaurant owners get through the immediate crisis, but also position them to succeed beyond the short term. I don't believe that the generation of revenue that we're helping with will make them whole. But I also think that this is a long-term opportunity for doing digital transformation that will make them even stronger coming out of this. James Mark at North Restaurant in Providence says after the pandemic passes, the already tough restaurant business could be even tougher. There may be lingering government regulations on social distancing. More likely, he says, consumers will have shifted their expectations and they'll hesitate to pile into small dining spaces the way they did before. We have models and have made investments in our restaurants being in a certain kind of way. My small restaurant, Big King, we only fit 21 people in there, but they're all close together. And what does that mean for my viability going forward? James says he's ready to accept whatever fate awaits him. If things don't work out, he won't see it as a personal failure. The restaurant industry, he says, is facing something akin to a natural disaster, potentially devastating and completely beyond its control. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alex Nunes. Of all the workers and industries devastated by the COVID-19 pandemic, the region's dairy farmers are among the hardest hit, with the price of wholesale milk plummeting. For years, Vermont's specialty cheese industry was an often bright spot in the state's herding dairy sector. But as Vermont Public Radio's John Dillon reports, the state's cheese producers are now struggling as well. Lainey Fondiller describes the scene in her Westfield barn as organized mayhem. The 30 or so alpine and sanan dairy goats, her ladies as she calls them, get quite excited about the morning milking. Fondiller has been winning fans for her specialty cheeses since the late 1980s. Her creamy, tangy delights have gotten rave reviews in the New York Times and elsewhere. A good part of her business was sales to restaurants in the city. Not now. You called your distributors and their hair's on fire. And no, not this week. Didn't sell anything. Fondiller says after an initial 90% drop in sales, her business has recovered somewhat. She started discounting prices and selling through CSAs or community-supported agriculture outlets. She's also aging more cheese for sale later. Still, she had to let one employee go and put off plans to hire a part-time evening milker. She says her overall business is now down about 50%. And I I understand, you know, the the restaurants are closed. People have lost their jobs. And I I understand all of that. But in the meantime, you just do try to figure out how to stay alive and um, trying to keep things moving. Many farms and cheese producers in Vermont are in similar survival mode. At Jasper Hill Farm in Greensboro, owner Matteo Kaler says he's also seen about a 50% drop in sales. 
we've dispersed our herd to neighbors and to Andersonville Farm, another farm that we, we manage in Glover, in order to try and shrink the amount of milk that uh, we're producing, mostly because we don't sell milk. We sell cheese, and when we see a drop in demand, you know, we've got to make less milk. And conventional dairy farmers, already suffering from five years of low prices, will see a tremendous hit from COVID as demand plummets as schools and restaurants remain closed. Now, for the average Vermont farm, this equates to about an annual revenue loss of $175,000. So this is huge. Catherine Durand is senior economist for the Agrimark Dairy Co-op. She expects prices to stay low at least through August. Farm prices are far below the cost of production. We know they're not sustainable. And unfortunately, we know that if these prices play out, if we do not get immediate and substantial action, we're going to be facing a rapid loss of dairy farms. And we're really jeopardizing the security of our local food systems and our rural communities. State Agriculture Secretary Anson Tebbets has pushed the U.S. Department of Agriculture to use its authority to buy up dairy products to shore up the price and use the surplus for hunger programs. We're encouraging the secretary, particularly on the dairy side, to take action as soon as possible, to buy as much product as possible. We're also encouraging the secretary to set a floor price over the next four months to keep things and stabilize uh, the industry. Uh, We believe that floor price should be at least $19.50 for our farmers. Tebbit says that price of $19.50 is about the cost of production for many Vermont farmers. And while farmers were supposed to get immediate help under the $2 trillion COVID relief package, Congressman Peter Welch says many farms apparently won't qualify right away for a $10,000 emergency loan available to most businesses. That's because they usually get their loans from the USDA, And the Small Business Administration, which actually runs the new program, has so far said farms are not eligible. The problem we have with the bill is that there's not a mechanism to get cash immediately to farmers. Welch says farms do qualify for a second tier of federal assistance, the payroll protection program that the legislation also authorized. And the question is whether it is going to provide any significant relief uh, to the farm community. Meanwhile, Vermont's 50 or so artisan cheese producers are taking matters into their own hands. The Vermont Cheese Council has launched an online sales directory to find new markets, Executive Director Marty Mundy says consumers want to know where they can still find their favorite chevre or camembert. And it helps folks decide if they know a cheesemaker whose cheese they love. They can go directly to the cheesemaker's online sales site if that exists. They also have the option to do things like reach out to a Vermont cheese shop and buy cheese from someone who maybe has a prepared Vermont cheese box. We have some of those shops listed. Mundy says the online sales are vital as business for many producers drop 50 to 70 percent almost overnight. She hopes consumers and policymakers do everything they can to support an industry that's become synonymous with Vermont quality food. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon. The online news site VT Digger recently reported that dairy farmers in Vermont have dumped more than 60,000 gallons of milk since April in response to plummeting demand. After the break, some solutions to a changing food world. Plus, it's quieter outside these days. We look at how that affects birds. It's next. 
Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Food banks and pantries across New England are struggling to meet increased need. In Hartford, Connecticut, a trio of churches has teamed up to provide dinner six days a week to anyone in need. As Connecticut Public Radio's Ryan Lindsay reports, the partnership is one way faith communities are working together to meet basic needs in the midst of the pandemic. Father, we, we honor you and we thank you for giving us the opportunity to serve. Yes, God. We ask that you would bless this. Dion Watkins is the pastor of Mount Olive Church Ministries in Hartford. Tuesdays and Thursdays are Mount Olive's nights to give out free dinners to whoever's hungry. No questions asked. We want to touch their stomachs. There's a lot of families that are hurting. Would you like a Sprite or water or Pepsi, my love? Give me Pepsi, please. All right, precious. God bless you, honey. Fried chicken and biscuits were hot and ready to go every night at 6 last week, the first week of the program. Jeremy Williams pastors Phillips Metropolitan CME Church down the street. His church gives out dinners on Mondays and Saturdays, but he took time out to see how things were going at Mount Olive. There are members of my congregation who who have battled with COVID-19. Some have even succumbed to it. And so, so in these times, there's this tricky balance between making sure we can provide for the needs but also making sure that everybody's staying safe. Marichelle Montz, whose church, the Citadel of Love, gives out dinners on Wednesdays and Fridays, said that even one meal for people and families who've lost jobs or hours at work makes a difference. People's money is tight, so for them to be able to know every night they can at least get a meal and maybe use whatever they have for breakfast or lunch, you know, it it was a way of us supplementing and helping and sort of being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in our community. Together, the three churches gave out 600 dinners during their first week. The pastors say the menu will change each week, but the goal remains the same, opening their spiritual doors to serve the community, even when the doors of their physical churches are closed. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Ryan Lindsay. More people seem to be baking bread right now, which means it's hard to find flour at the grocery store or online. Last time we checked on the website for King Arthur Flour in Vermont, the company's signature flowers were sold out. But if you do have flour, Elspeth Hay with WCAI's Local Food Report brings us the grounding ritual of sourdough. Sarah Reynolds North is marking time with bread. She starts each night around 10 p.m. The late night feeding of the special sourdough. The kids are asleep and... Alone in the kitchen, just one little step before bed for our daily bread. Sarah, who's formerly from Woods Hole, is a professional baker in Boston. But right now, like many of us, she's out of work and stuck at home. Still, she has her sourdough starter. She feeds it with equal parts water and flour. And while she sleeps, the lactobacteria and yeast that keep it alive bubble and ferment. The next morning at 8 a.m., her family's awake and back in the kitchen. Let's smell it. Mm, it smells nutty and yogurty. You want to smell? Ready. Ready for bread. So we're going to make our big family loaf, which fills a Dutch oven when it's baking. So let's do water. We're going to do 613 grams of water, which is kind of warm, but kind of not warm. If you use cold water, it'll take longer for your bread to rise. And if you use warm water, it'll be quicker. Do you want to help me pour this? Now we're going to do flour, 800 grams of this, 806, and salt, 18 grams of salt, 
and that is all that we need for this bread. Flour, water, salt. The days are hectic. But eight hours later, by 4 p.m., Sarah and her kids are back in the kitchen. I know, but I said... Okay, so we mixed our dough this morning, and we gave it two folds, one at a half hour, one at around an hour. And now it is jiggly and bubbly. Um, not bubbly, that's not the right word. Kind of airy. And so now we're going to do a pre-shape. So we're going to put it onto the counter. Some flour. You know, a healthy shaking of flour. And we're going to shape it. So basically this means just rolling it into a ball. While Sarah and her wife and their three kids eat dinner, the dough proofs or rises for a second time. Before they do the dishes, Sarah preheats the oven with a Dutch oven inside. When it's time to bake, she wants the pot to be really, really hot. Finally, at 7, it's time to cook the bread. Kids are heading to bed. I'm going to scoop the bread in and flip it over into the pot. You hear it sizzling in there. It's so hot. Let me close it up. Put this back in the oven for 25 minutes. The oven's at 490 degrees. And then that's that. The bread will be ready to eat in about 40 minutes. While she waits, Sarah says she's heard from a lot of people recently who are finding a daily rhythm in baking. It feels like, like we're stuck in this weird place where we don't really know how long this is going to last and what's next. And I think that baking bread is such a good antidote to all that because it's a routine and you're building the beginning and the end and the middle of all of it. And then you get to share it. Right, Quinn? The bread comes out of the oven, the kids are asleep, and it's time for the grown-ups to eat a late night snack. It's the close of another day. Time to feed the starter again and let it ferment and rise while the baker's family sleeps. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Elspeth Hay. That story comes from WCAI's Local Food Report. With schools and many businesses still closed, fewer cars are on the road. Even normally busy highways are relatively empty. So in some places, it's quieter outside. New England Public Radio's Nancy Cohen has wondered what that might mean for birds and other animals that are making their own kind of noise this time of year. One thing the coronavirus can't stop is the arrival of spring. And one of the early signs are the sounds of tiny frogs like these spring peepers. Another is the chorus of songbirds. But this year, even longtime listeners are hearing something different. We were stunned at how quiet it was. That's Don Krudsma, a retired UMass Amherst ornithologist who was walking with his wife recently near the Connecticut River at the end of a work day. And this is probably the typical UMass rush hour where there's just no UMass rush at this time. Everybody's staying home. If a professional listener like Krudsma heard a difference, what might animals notice? And would a soundscape with fewer cars change how they behave? Wildlife biologist Paige Warren of the UMass Amherst Department of Environmental Conservation explains the challenge different kinds of birds normally face when they sing near the rumble of cars. If you have a high-pitched tweet, tweet, tweet sound, it might get through better than if you have a 
you know, low-pitched kind of sound. The messages birds send with their calls and songs include alarms to alert other birds to predators, a get-out-of-here sound defending nesting territory, and songs that serve as advertisements seeking a mate. David Luther, a biologist at George Mason University, studies how birds adjust how they sing to contrast with background sounds made by humans. He says each species does it differently. In general, species tend to sing a little bit louder in the presence of human noise. Others will change the pitch or frequency of their song, so they don't tend to sing in the lower frequencies of their song, down here, and they'll sing up here sometimes instead. Others sometimes change the structure of their songs. Luther says less human-made noise at the moment could have a positive impact. For instance, less stress on birds or access to more territory. Places that they wouldn't go when it's usually really loud. So they might expand their habitat use or territory size a little bit so they can get more food and potentially even newer access to mates. Luther says the song a male sings may even sound better. More beautiful that will get more females to respond to it than the song he would be singing when there is human-made noise around. Less car traffic may also make the sounds of nature accessible to more people. Paige Warren has studied bird species in neighborhoods with different incomes. Wealthier neighborhoods have higher numbers of bird species. And wealthier neighborhoods also tend to be quieter, have less traffic noise than more impoverished neighborhoods. With emptier roads now, there might be a change for some humans. This might open opportunities for people in otherwise noisy neighborhoods to potentially hear some of the nature around them. More nature for more people, quieter soundscapes for birds to communicate more effectively, maybe short-term silver linings to this period of human isolation. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. And that's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio. 